man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards some greater purpose? With bloated ego, we are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Because I, I feel like that pretty much. His goose is cooked. Yeah, like we're talking about saying. Ezra Miller here on Extended Clip episode 64. Uh, he shouldn't have choked that girl. Our new segment, Whose Goose is Cooked? <laughs> Ezra Miller, you're done for, and we're coming for you. Never going to work again. Yeah, I mean, people people are wanting to end the pedophilia, you know, end sex trafficking. You're seeing a lot of rallies for that, and I'm glad people are stepping up. Um we got to get Ezra Miller. We got to get these guys out of out of Hollywood. So welcome to Extended <laughs> Clip, episode sixty four. As I said, uh, our double feature this week is The Blade, the Choi Hark film from nineteen ninety five, and Terror in a Texas Town by Joseph H. Lewis from nineteen fifty eight. Now, Malcolm, what compelled you to pair these films together? Well, I was you know Monday. I was trying to decide what are we going to do for the week, and I was just in a. I was just in a haze. I was lost. I didn't know where to go. And um, I was like, I want some, you know, I want some action in these movies. I want, you know, either, you know, sex or violence, you know, something juicy. And The Blade and Terror in a Texas Town kind of just came to me because I saw the harpoon on the cover of Terror in a Texas Town. And these movies are about weapons and blades. And that's their connective tissue. But also, they're also about towns that are downtrodden by... Uh, bandits or you know landowners or whatever you call it people rising up and uh you know questioning how the town runs and much like uh, another recurring theme running through our podcast about men losing arms and True. readapting yeah. to life uh in, in this case both men readapting to life as you know uh weapon wielding agents of violence uh mm-hmm. and doing so with their off hand you know Personally, I think that's the best thing you can do is lose an arm, try and mod out the nub uh, to yeah. be to to equip it with violence. So the blade. Uh, let's see. I, it's such a hard film to describe, but I'm going to give it my best. Uh, Ling narrates the film, and her her father operates this sword factory where Dingon and Ironhead work. And what appears at first to be something of a love triangle with a martial arts kind of mystique behind it ends up being a kind of vengeful martial arts epic where Ding On loses an arm and, you know, uh, plans to and trains to take vengeance on both the bandits that are terrorizing this town and uh, the flying dragon, the tattooed swordsman who killed his father. Um Malcolm, how how did you take to this film? Well, this is my first Soy Hark film, and mm-hmm. I'm I mean I'm immediately hooked. I think this movie's incredibly savvy on multiple levels. I mean, obviously with like these these fight scenes, there I mean, there's you know things that I've never seen before, camera angles I've never seen pulled out or used that way in a context in a fight scene that are are purely impressive. But I think narrative wise, I think this is really gripping too. How you know Ling's narration kind of. Uh, puts a thread of melancholy, you know, because uh, tragic things happen to the characters, but really Ling meditating on all of this stuff makes it even sadder and kind of like the conclusions she's reaching to kind of, of the questioning of traditions, I think is a, a perfect pairing with all the 
you know, uh, inventive violence that's on display in this movie. Yeah. JT, had you seen any Choi Hark before? Um, yeah, this is my fourth Hark. I saw Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain was the first one I watched. I think probably around the start of the pandemic, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but People then, have been going crazy for him during the pandemic, yeah, which we love to see, you know. Twitter.com's Augie has really uh, <laughs> been, like, hyping him up. And uh, I've loved absolutely everything I've seen, including the blade. They're, these are motion pictures with emphasis on the motion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's like, it's insane how many beautiful fucking images he's just throwing at you all the fucking time. Yeah, the, these films visually, uh, let alone narratively, move at such a rapid pace where, you know, the it's tempting to to screenshot if you're someone like me who wants to who likes to hold on to singular images of I've, cinema i've standed up against screenshot culture yeah. and i've i've renounced it just yeah. letting the people know i know <laughs> <laughs> but but if you're someone like me or someone on the extended club discord and the the screenshot channel uh, who likes to remember frames of films, you know, th- this almost seems like it's moving too fast, but I think the assemblage of images, it, it creates such a c- cumulative effect, you know, the-, the visual patterns of this film and the way that Choi Hark shoots action versus, you know, other types of scenes, <laughs> exposition, mm-hmm. dr- drama, romance, etc., um, but really, the the action here is just some of the most stunning stuff I've ever seen in cinema. Mm-hmm. Like I I've never seen anything like that final set piece where you know the the bamboo prism that was fought within just twenty minutes earlier is being destroyed one stick at a time with a sword, while another man is using his sword to. Uh, let the sticks fall off at a certain angle so it's all collapsing around the two of them and you know the the inventiveness of the choreography and the camera in proximity to it is just astonishing every time an action sequence starts in this film Mm -hmm. and it's not even just like the camera movements or even like the framing itself but kind of the texture of all these fight scenes kind of like the the bamboo sticks or like just the clinging of blades or even just like, you know, even some of like the town scenes, just all the dust and everything and like sunbeams and stuff like that. It's very specific to every formalistic decision it's making. It's mm-hmm. such a confident movie. Yeah. The first bit of violence we see is a, a dog uh, falling <laughs> into a little hunting trap, which early on, just like in the the first Troy Hark movie I'd ever seen, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, you get some uh, gerbil violence up top, and later you get a cat getting impaled, and this film also does not shy away from that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if you want something where the the animals are, are not uh, always being just like stabbed and stepped on, maybe watch this film Green Snake, <laughs> where they take on a different uh, role in the film. You could uh, also, you know, if you're a V and something, look at it from another narrative, a lot of bear traps in this movie and people getting caught in these bear traps so maybe you could see that as retribution for all the animal harm going on (laughs) exactly it could be i mean hey this is you know 15 years after dangerous encounters of the first kind after Troy hark's very angry period in the beginning of his career now it seems like uh could be uh, a little more reflective of the past you know Mm -hmm. not that he hasn't always been reflective of the past you know look at something like shanghai blues for that but Anyway, so uh, the, the first like fight scene we get is a, is a fist fight, the only real fist fight we get in the film that slowly turns into a poles versus swords fight. Uh, and then from then on, the action is pretty much sword-based, and I think that the 
the fetishization, the fixation, whatever you want to call it, on the titular blade, you know, <laughs> on these swords being made by these swordsmiths is so amazing and has such like historical impact, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't seen all that much Hong Kong cinema, but I feel like there's so much history in the, you know, 40 or 50, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s Hong Kong films I've seen leading up to this one uh, infused in this. Like you look at something mm-hmm. like Crippled Avengers or One-Armed Swordsman or something like that obviously plays an influence in it. And also just the the lore behind it. You know, usually we don't like lore, but I'm going to go ahead and make an exception. Mm-hmm. Extended clip. Fuck Western lore. True. I think, you know... Let's get more Eastern lore. I bet it's good. I like it here. I haven't denied it yet from the yeah. East. Only from the West. I like, yeah. I like I like how like the blade, especially um what do you call it? Dingon's uh blade is like it, it treats it with a certain sense of iconography and like it reflects on kind of like how tradition is so in- important in this movie and there's multiple scenes where they, you know, make a make a point to shout out like some sort of sword ceremony and how much they respect this blade and kind of like um them using this blade to kind of like right the wrongs of their ancestors like yeah. this this is their tool to rise up you know what i mean i think i think that's very interesting early on in the film you know as i said it kind of teases almost like a romantic uh triangle kind of thing which i think that just being set up there before the martial arts epic plot takes place uh Mm -hmm. really just like hammers home how hard the end hits you know Mm -hmm. where not to you know spoilers uh (laughs) where you get ling you know after this action conflict uh you get her years later thinking back about the two men we've watched throughout this film and ending on in particular uh coming back back to her and her waiting for them to come back and imagining it in her old age you know uh makes this film seem like the end is the rest of their lives you know which yeah. is always a great kind of way to end a film with that not a circular thing but just it's gonna keep going no matter what the narrative never really finishes with these characters uh so yeah i think the beginning when she's just like staring at their asses in the <laughs> shower really helps solidify how hard that ending hits I mean, just to point out the ass gazing in the shower. and Quite like, a bit of male ass in this movie little, in the first 20 minutes or so. No, yeah, exactly. I like what it does with perspective as she kind of like, um, she's the daughter of the person who owns the sword factory. So she's kind of always looming around the factory. And we do see the boys in the locker room. We see their you know, nice behinds. But also we see, um, is it like Iron Skull? He gets like like lashed by, by her father. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, some lashes to the ass. And uh, she watches that, you know, and that's kind of like a fun like wraparound and her watching like the asses and seeming like a just a normal perverted way to where it's like, you know, she is in a love triangle with people that her dad whips with like chains and yeah. stuff like that. And I think the key element of that scene is the blood dripping down their asses yeah. because it's like they're, you know, connected by blood. They have that blood ceremony and then also mm-hmm. all of the action. And this is so damn bloody. Like the sword mm-hmm. fights, as much as you hear the clanking of iron, you also hear the squirting and gushing <laughs> of blood. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, not to, again, we're fast forwarding to the end, but I think with the final fight, that kind of uh, towards the end of the, you know, the last fight between Ding On and the, like, the flying, what's that, the flying dragon? Yeah. That it's like they, they take a moment to just reflect and they, they both feel like their own pain, their own wounds, and realize, like, how hurt they've been. And then it just cuts to, like, Ling just, like, ruminating on this herself. And it's, I mean, yeah, just like, I feel like that's a great moment where, you know, you have all, like, this instant violence a lot of just like blades hitting skin but like towards the end you get this nice reflective moment where it's all just thought about yeah i think the road to recovery as it were for ding on uh getting used to life as a one-armed man is Mm -hmm. really well done because you know Troy hark always has these little comedic asides in his films or at least to me i don't know i've only seen like five of them but Mm -hmm. uh you know in this there's a scene where he's working at a restaurant and it's like a goofy you know bus boy stacking too many plates and in his one hand Mm -hmm. gag you know (laughs) and it's very funny but of course that leads directly into you know tension and confrontation between the bandits in the town and you know his former loyalty to the 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 craft of swordsmith you know you have flying dragon this man with face tats all over (laughs) him and a different i guess set of scars than all these guys in this sword thing by the way i'm still very unclear on a lot of this movie i don't care because the way it made Mm -hmm. me feel and there's a line toward the end and i still don't understand uh something but it doesn't matter (laughs) you know uh, because she loves him or something like that Mm -hmm. and it's like that's kind of how i feel about the action in this film is where there are some things maybe that are just there to set up action or whatever but it when this film is at its best there's really nothing like it that i've seen you know Mm -hmm. no well there's like a lot of the things that happen to the characters like that whole segment of him losing his arm and then his, you know, house getting burned down. There's almost mm-hmm. like a nihilistic wave of violence of things that happen to this character almost for like no apparent reason. And yes, it is to like set up action and stuff like that. But it's I like how it's uh, it's felt and reflected on on like the scenes following. I mean, I think like, uh, you know, just getting inspired by the traditional come up, you know, Rocky Balboa style when he's yeah. training as the one arms uh, one armed swordsman. Just him having to work with half of a kung fu book that they yeah. recover from the house fire. He's having to work twice as hard with half of the material. That's inspirational. And the skill set that he acquires, you know, to play off of his weaknesses, he just goes fucking Taz mode. Like yeah. he's just <laughs> spinning around like a top, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's like uh, a perfect match. You know, the the flying dragon character. He like a lot of you know wire work, uh, Hong Kong action stuff. He's flying in the air doing flips and shit like that. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, you know, Ding is just fucking spinning all over the place, just. Uh, kicking up dust and stuff yeah. like that and obviously both masters of the blade you know uh and the, there are so many close calls and also when blades actually do strike skin it's so gory there's someone's leg who gets cut off and there's that open leg wound that just looks like a pink piece of you know medium rare beef like it's so <laughs> fucking disgusting uh it's I don't know. This film is at once visceral and like also has that step back of being kind of mystical mm-hmm. or, you know, mythical rather. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's so it's so unique. I just feel stupid trying to figure out new ways to talk about something I don't fully understand. <laughs> no, I feel like there's something I'm missing just because of uh, like my lack of uh, movie knowledge, I guess. And like, But I feel like there's some sort of commentary about wuxia films within <laughs> this movie and kind of maybe how you detailed where the flying dragon a lot of like wire work maybe more traditional where we have like this man just one-armed man spinning in a circle with a blade and that's and that's how he gets it done you know what i mean taking untraditional methods to 
deliver you know a, a similar story maybe yeah. that's what soy hark's doing here yeah, yeah. oh I, man and when ding on he like has that like little uh like blade like the with the chain on yeah. it that he uses to like sort of whip around that's oh so fucking good no that's i mean that's that's one of the great movie weapons you know in addition to the harpoon and uh yeah terror in a texas town i i love the build-up to that final duel because it's you know all of these people in this town and some of these swordsmiths, you know, taking on flying dragon and the, the people that he's with, you know, and it's this, these huge masses of people. And that's where you have like the guy getting his leg cut off and a guy doing like a jump, uh, a drop kick off of like a big rock in the background while one guy's looking into camera. And there's just so much going on, you know, uh, right when it feels like all is lost, that perfect moment, uh, you realized, Oh Yeah. Ding on the character who we've been watching fucking train for the last 30 minutes hasn't been in the last five minutes. <laughs> oh shit. And then it cuts to him. And I'll tell you folks, I was hooting and hollering when he showed up at the end. Uh, and that last fight scene is so beautiful. There's a camera movement where one takes the other to the ground and the camera then is on the ground and does like somersaults with them flipping uh, along with them as they flip each other and one shot where like a lens flare starts to creep yeah. in and then also everything just starts to get overexposed and white out as like they just kind of become shadows and then it's just boom cut to the next super visceral shot after that dreamy one and it's uh it's one of the greatest you know fights not to presage i was going to say this about the final duel of our b movie but this also one of the greatest final showdowns in any kind of action cinema i can think of no yeah i mean this that you really could just go like shot for shot with Soy Hark saying like, wow, he did this and yeah. did this. And you'd really have a lot to talk about. You'd have hours and hours of material just of like really impressive shots. Mm. It's crazy how he finds a way to contextualize them in a way where it doesn't feel like too try hard. It feels fluid in the sense of like the chaos he's filming. And, you know, even kind of like the the stiller parts, the slower parts, too, I think he nails pretty well. There's one. Uh, one moment i think pretty soon after uh, ding on gets his arm cut off where he's like praying in a field and has like this uh foggy landscape with the sun peeking through and mm -hmm. like kind of like distant framing and it's just it was really touching so the film basically wraps up then as uh you know as we said uh many years later uh ling is taking a hit off the old pipe uh you know hit the pipe once age 20 years and think about the uh, the ghosts of the men you watched kill a bunch of other men in front of you for <laughs> And then she says, uh, you know, the field of the great hold, I still don't get it, but I don't care anymore. And then she takes that hit that ages her 20 years. <laughs> uh, and that's how I felt wrapping up this movie. Uh, it's, uh, it's a five bullets like a five ever seen one. I'm going to go four and a half bullets. I really love it. But here's the thing. I feel like Sue Hart could even impress me even more. And yeah. Give me even something better. That's how, because it's his, it's his first film I've seen by him. And it just, I'm so ready to go where he takes me. But yeah, this movie is really great. I feel like Ling uh, plays like really uh, is a you know a great part of this movie and kind of uh, gives more context and um, she gives like this movie such depth, like kind of just being in the background and seeing this violence from a distance and her having the ability to reflect on all this violence and how um, kind of like detached it makes her and kind of hopeful, uh, not hopeful for the world. And I think uh, I just found it really interesting. JT, what? What do you think? Um, yeah, I also really love this. I'm going uh, four and a half bullets. I like 
agree that it's definitely like a whirlwind where I get sort of lost in the mix with some of the details because like I think I mean with elements of like cultural stuff and just not having seen uh, as many Hong Kong movies there are things that like I'm missing out on but it doesn't depreciate my enjoyment of the film at all because it's such a like an epic story that's like kind of like uh the classic hero's journey in a way where ding on starts like kind of like dweeby and dorky at the beginning and you know he's going to like take on this amazing uh transition but it just works so effectively and looks so beautiful throughout every step of the way i mean malcolm you talked about like the textures like one of the early scenes where like rain is just pouring down it just adds to the intensity of it all and then i love how he's like constantly sort of chopping and cutting up the frame like with like vertical or horizontal lines be it like Mm -hmm. the reeds or the blades themselves like he gets a really lot uh a lot of really interesting compositions like within like something in the frame. Oh yeah. He's always doing big frame within frame stuff in this. It's beautiful. No, like kind of like his uh, attention to like an active foreground really does remind me of Joseph H. Lewis. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, the way you were describing it at the end, I was like, are you, are you talking about Joseph wagon wheel Lewis? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the Hong Kong cinema you're going to get from us for months. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I can't, I can't wait to go back to the 90s Hong Kong cinema soon on Absolutely. extended clip. But we'll be right back to talk about a blank page. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back to talk about Terror in the Texas Town by Joe Spacewalks. I watched Grown Ups Ups 2 because you said you did uh, once on Acid, and it was a good time. It is a good time. I am recording right now, but I can delete. (laughs) That's okay. I don't care. Welcome back to (laughs) everyone's favorite segment, Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, Malcolm, what did you watch this week? I watched a little movie called Songwriter. And I say a little movie because I see... I guess this movie, I thought this movie was much more popular starring people like Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson, but I guess wasn't really known, but it's a, it's a little movie about the country music business. And let me tell you, business is ruthless. You know, um, Willie Nelson is kind of, he's you know, got married a couple times. He's found some su- success songwriting rather than singing, but he's caught up in a lot of debt and his, co- his company's about to get repossessed, his uh, record label. So he, he adapts the outlaw country spirit we all know and love. Not being corporate anymore, he hits the road, starts a new label in order to uh, you know pay off his debts from the old one with Chris Christopherson being the Lothario uh, country star. And you get a great uh, uh, supporting performance from Rip Torn. It's kind of like a shady promoter who like wants to rip people off who ends up managing um, this one country star that Willie Nelson's trying to come up, Honey Cardner. And um, it's just a it's a great like uh, encapsulation of the country scene. You have like, you know, a lot of depressed people, a lot of alcoholics, a lot of shady venues. And Alan Rudolph, even though he didn't write it, he's always inventive with the camera work and, uh, you know, let scenes go long enough to where you could get some good character moments, especially between Willie Nelson and um, Chris Christopherson. But, uh, you know, I really like this movie. I you know, it's not the 
best Willie Nelson performance. I think Thief, Willie Nelson in Thief, is one of my favorite supporting performances of it's all time. It's amazing. One of the strangest, like one in one of one perform. I mean, yeah. almost every man lead and also one of the supporting guys is like a one of one performance. Uh, despite his use of like, uh, you know, I don't want to say tropes, but he uses a lot of types of characters you've seen before. But he always makes them so individual. But Willie Nelson and Thief, mm-hmm. oh man, that is a singular role. Yeah, and you get you get brief moments of like why you like him in that movie in this one and he's not a bad actor but this this movie is like it is performance orientated there's a lot of country songs so if you're one of those uh, you know i hate country and rap people <laughs> might not be for you but uh i don't know I, th- I found it very interesting and alan rudolph doesn't make bad movies everyone i've seen i've been impressed by heavily yeah i was filling out my myspace the other day and in the favorite movies category <laughs> i put everything but country and rap <laughs> <laughs> what did you watch this week jt i Rewatched uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Um, I've been meaning to cap off uh, the third of the prequels since um, we had done uh, the first two, and this week I finally got around to it. Amped up that bass, like just playing it loud, the whole goddamn block could hear. And I think this is my favorite one of the prequels. I mean, that's not like a, a controversial or like. Uh, rare opinion to have. I would say it's the only universal opinion about the prequels. <laughs> or yeah. the closest to a consensus, rather. Yeah. Um, but I agree with it. I mean, well, a lot of the complaints about the prequels in general, as we talked about before, are just fucking stupid because I think the movies are filled with a lot of action, a lot of things happen, but I think it's the most condensed uh, in the third and happens, like, really quickly. Like, I love uh, the opening set piece uh, with Anakin and Obi-Wan just, like, cruising through, like, a, a big space battle. Um, and I like the way that Palpatine uh, takes Anakin under his wing in that one a lot. Like, the allure of, like, evil and temptation as uh, the bureaucracy is descending into fascism. It just works so well, and, like... It's, I don't know, it, it, tonally the darkest one, I think, is why I dig it the most. Yeah, I think our talk about clones made me almost like it as much as Revenge of the Sith because of how much is going on setting up the events of Revenge of the Sith. But then I rewatched Sith as well in the last couple of weeks, and yeah, it's just, oh man, everything falling out of place, if you will. And uh, yeah, I mean, the allure of the dark side of fascism. Uh, look. We, we watch John Ford movies. <laughs> Look, we, I always have those thoughts sometimes, you know? <laughs> John Ford, far from a fascist. <laughs> Extended but, uh, clip to fash pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> it's just me. You talk to these Twitter leftists, and they think, how green was my valley is fascist or something like that. Yeah, they'd rather have how green was my party. You know, I don't know about that one. <laughs> uh, I I also saw uh, so Revenge of the Sith. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Recently, <laughs> and uh, I like uh, Attack of the Clones a little like bit better. better. Yeah. yeah, I like it a little better. That's well, my that's hot just because you're a little different. <laughs> yeah, that is good. But what about you, Eddie? Did you watch anything this week? Well, I wanted to use this middle segment to uh, return to a, I guess, sub segment of the show that Patreon listeners heard the first edition of. Uh, our discussion of the films of Oliver Stone. Of course, the segment is called Everybody Must Get Stoned. Well, I would not feel so all alone. Everybody must 
So uh, we we loved talk radio. I you know so I, I just had to had to dig a little deeper and I watched Snowden in 2016 and look I've only seen two of this guy's films but like from from the outside looking in this appears to be kind of a perfectly Oliver Stoneian narrative you know a true blue conservative patriot or should I say true red conservative patriot post 9/11 gets left pilled by process of integrating himself further and further into a right-wing imperialist state and has no choice but to betray all of his co-workers and come clean and in that moment he was never a bigger patriot i don't know i i feel like the main line on this one was like why don't you just watch the documentary and now that some time has passed it's like this is a really good movie it, it has some flaws in it uh, but I think that the overall arc is so powerful in the way that, just like in talk radio, uh, Stone is like using the key elements of each scene, uh, like the microphones that are always listening at these, you know, uh, headquarters that Snowden is working at in these flashbacks, and the camera lenses that he's so scared to appear in front of in the present day. Uh, and all of these, you know, these small details uh, that clearly both Snowden in that moment, or at least Stone thinks he is, uh, and Stone himself are so fixated on that they kind of build the scene out from the small objects like a camera lens or a microphone. I mean, that's just like some of the small visual games that Stone is playing. He He's really stylistically going all out in this one uh, because it is kind of just like a biopic thing and he's trying to spice it up a little bit, you know? And it is also very strange to see like a, uh, you know, based on true events, but like a narrative drama film with Glenn Gary, Glenn Greenwald as a supporting character. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's like a really visually attentive film. Uh, and I think that people, the, the haters come at me. That's all I'm saying. Do you guys, you, uh, you've seen this one, right? Yeah. Malcolm? Yeah. I saw it back when it got released and I, I liked it a good amount too. And I was just, you know, just struck by, you know, compared to something, you know, I guess vice hadn't come out yet, but I was, I was thinking like, this is, you know, truly like leftist, like biopic, or at least just, you know, anti- American practice and like it's good to see this type of stuff on screen and you know I, I'm always game for stone and his bag of tricks yeah and um, yeah Edward Snowden's a hero and it was just I was just happy to see him celebrated as such I think that's a big bonus for the movie too I think a lot of people were maybe impatient with it because I can see like uh, watching that and within the thir first 30 minutes you know especially in 2016 you know you have Edward Snowden uh, owning his lib girlfriend with facts and logic and she even says the line why do I hate intelligent conservatives so much <laughs> and it is a little bit of a cringe factor there uh, but then like over the end credits uh, after you get all the actors names and stuff and you just are continuing to get these news clips uh, much like the last couple Spike Lee films have kind of ended with the, the corresponding news footage you know mm -hmm. uh, this one has the audio of so much of like the 20 2016 election and the news cycles revolving around it and you get a little soundbite from two democratic candidates of 2016 let me just tell you the uh the editing there uh puts stone on the right side of history in terms of the uh the the <laughs> hillary versus bernie debacle of 2016 oh he picked hillary to win he was on the right side <laughs> no, well, essentially <laughs> what i'm saying is uh if i recall correctly now i may edit this out because i i think though 
uh, that he uses a clip of her saying that like he is a criminal who like stole information or whatever like that. And then right after that, uh, as this title comes up the second time, you hear Bernie Sanders praising him for exposing America to the the lies and the uh, the overreach of the uh, surveillance state in yeah. America. So, uh, put some put, cover up those uh, cover up those front facing cameras. Yeah, you know I think people didn't like I think people didn't like this movie because it gave Glenn Gre- uh, Glenn Greenwald <laughs> a lot of Twitter clout, and I think that made people angry. Really? They wanted that clout. Yeah. yeah, I think probably the documentary probably gave him more clout because it's like him. True, but who? It's there's a movie about it. Why watch a documentary? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make sense. That's true. Fuck fake movies. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll be right back on extended clip to talk about terror in a Texas town. Yeah, fuck Josh Gad. And we're back on extended clip uh, talking about terror in a Texas town, a film by Joseph H. Lewis starring Sterling Hayden. Um, Malcolm, what is what is this movie about? Well, it's about a decaying Texas town that awaits the the well doesn't await this guy's arrival. But there's a (laughs) Swedish guy who comes to see his dad and his dad is apparently killed and his land taken from this Swedish man. Uh, you know, a whaler, a man who kills whales for a living, wants to get his land back. But there's a, an oil baron, I think, running the town, and they have uh, possession of the land, so he stands up for what's what's his. It's one of those classic late westerns about the death of the West, where, you yeah. know, you have the people, you even have acknowledgement of, you know, indigenous people. You have this Mexican family at the forefront, really, here. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, when asked how long they've been there, they respond, frankly, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, which really does kind of hit home uh, when you're as late in the the cycle of the Westerns as 1958. And this is, you know, veteran director Joseph H. Lewis's final motion picture. And I didn't realize that when I chose oh, shit. it. Yeah, it, it's a, it, it hits hard in that regard. You know, it's a, it's a late one. And he really... Uh, he had no bones about picking up a script by blacklisted writer Dalton Trumbo using a pseudonym here for the credit uh, because he knew he was done anyway and he just felt like telling this one last story and boy he does a hell of a job doing it so the uh, you get you get like a cold open a pre-credit sequence which mm-hmm. you also see in another late 50s uh, Western uh, wagon master uh, similarly used I guess. And uh, that is where you get like a tease at the very end of the movie, the duel, where it's a uh, a man with a six shooter who we learn now is shooting with his off hand because he lost his right arm, uh, and the very tall Sterling Hayden, uh, what pl- wearing, uh, wearing a uh, what's it called? Harpoon. Harpoon? Holding yeah, a harpoon. Yeah, I was just waiting to get the word out of my mouth. <laughs> um, holding a harpoon. <laughs> right out the gate, like this, like really got me with that because it's like 
that pulpy sort of like my dad watched a lot of like TV westerns like Gunsmoke and bullshit like that. So I'd catch it a lot as a kid. And like this is like a really heightened version of that pulpy like TV western feel with that like cold open there. And like the style of the text, I mean, obviously like. Uh, Tarantino was drawing from it but like it gave me the big sort of bounty law vibes from like once upon a time mm-hmm. and I just I don't know that quality of it uh, is perfect throughout yeah I yeah you were talking about like how it acknowledges indigenous people and I I, I found out a new category of movies while watching movies the it's woke called western the woke western yeah and you could file it's this my favorite uh, movie yeah you could file this under the woke westerns with a uh, broken arrow and I can't you know, I can't think of others but there's Look, others. there's plenty of others there's yeah. dozens of us yeah <laughs> <laughs> who love a nice good woke western and yeah it is how much like um, attention that's given to this family and like what they're going to have to sacrifice if they move um, away like the oil baron wants them to is it's it's really touching and it really spends a lot of time on that like i i come i think where um um the father of the family agree, agrees with sterling hating like i'm gonna step up i'm gonna fight like i'm not gonna hide anymore and the mother goes off to cry because she has a baby and she realizes the consequences you know of his actions what they could be and there's just a moment where the father is holding the son and they're looking in the hallway while the mother cries like off screen and it's just it's so it's so touching, and he's just like, "Yep, mother's not gonna like us for right now." Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is a really nice touch, but it is also like a weirdly like not very heartwarming one. Like it's a yeah, it's I don't know, it's kind of beautiful in that more realistic way of like, yeah, this is uh, this is like an old western town on the brink of modernity where like uh, other people are living a lot more comfortably. You know, the yeah. westerns where you have the more modern. Uh, wealthy fat cats like this uh, land and oil baron here. So he he wants to buy up all the land. Oil is struck at some point, but I think he just wants to buy all the property first off. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the oil, if I'm not, you know, look, folks, I woke up I, I put this movie on before I even poured myself a cup of coffee. So, <laughs> so some of the plot details of the first 15 minutes may have been lost on me. But uh, the, this land and oil uh, greedy fat man with a beard who should have been played by Orson Welles in a perfect <laughs> world uh, hires this black hat mercenary killer who has two six shooters on his hip and he shoots both of them with his left hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh that performance is just so incredible. <laughs> you were always a right-handed gun. What happened, Johnny? This is the hardest fist in Texas. It's a solid steel. Somebody blew the old one off, and I've been shooting left-handed ever since. I use the right to slug guys who ask too many questions. Cold-blooded killer in him, uh, you know, representing the decay and the evil of the Old West. And, like, there, there's really no hope other than a, a Swedish man and a <laughs> Mexican family uh, to to keep the, the land and this town. Uh, not the way it was, but for the people who should be living there. Yeah, not being controlled by this one big oil baron who could do whatever he wants, who's willing that who's showing that he's willing to kill people. That's not someone you want taking care of your land. And I think yeah, the, it, the bleakness really stood out to me. I mean, 
you talk about the gunslinger and his relationship with uh, his wife or girlfriend or whatever, and the Swede, um, you know, who says Ja multiple times. I found that enjoyable. But the Swede, <laughs> the Swede was is talking to that woman, and she's like, "I'm only with him because." You know, I know I'm not good enough for anyone else. And when I look to him, I know I'm a little bit better than him and I get comfort in that. And it's, yeah. it is like, it seems like every scenario here, no one's really happy when like, when um, uh, the Swede is getting teased by the gunslinger and his boys, there's such a detachment to what's going on, especially with uh, the gunslinger and his girlfriend uh, uh, watching from a distance. They, they just seem so disinterested with it but they let it happen anyways and it's just you know it's sad yeah the first scene where sterling hayden is talking to uh the the lover of the gunslinger mercenary killer contract killer uh is a, a beautiful scene i mean all of these scenes have their stylistic approaches uh lewis is like very varied within his like different you know, bag of tricks that he's reaching into. Uh, but this one is like a long still take of just the two of them talking. Like it's a fucking Hong Sang Soo movie over here. Uh, and then you get that zoom out as uh, he approaches the third party and then, you know, just tra- uh, tracking up and down the bar and the, you know, classic Lewis uh, foreground background action throughout the movie. You know, you do get that classic wagon wheel uh, <laughs> foregrounding a lot of shots and, uh, the the assassination or uh, the killing, I guess, of uh, uh, Sterling Hayden's father that we see early on in the film, you know. Yeah, he tells Jose and Pepe uh, to go hide and they just can listen, which is pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They just listen to me get killed, you know, but they still peep through the window and you get that POV shot that's wonderful. I like that the POV of like sort of looking through the window is played again when uh, Johnny Crail, the gunslinger, like right before he is killed, like fucking harpooned yeah. uh he's like looking at down the window seeing the mob just like come for him i mean and we might as well just talk about that ending because it's like the first two minutes and the last three or whatever uh but it's like one of my favorite scenes ever almost <laughs> it's so fucking crazy it's just a duel of a man wielding a weapon that is used to throw out like whales when you're on the ocean uh, or in the ocean, rather, and a man holding a six-shooter. And who do you think is going to win? It's the man who ducks out of the way of a bu- a six-foot-five man ducking <laughs> under a bullet <laughs> as he dives forward and throws his harpoon. And, oh, my God, that shot of uh, Johnny getting harpooned in the chest, you know, and you get that little squishy sound as it goes in. It's it's beautifully violent, just like the blade. You know, you get yeah. that uh, that like uh, release of all the tension that was brewing through pure violence and bloodshed. Then uh, Sterling Hayden is on the ground, just staring at the man he just killed, and then the end comes up over his face, <laughs> and you're out of there in eighty minutes. You know. <laughs> no, H. Lewis is a master, and he knew that he slammed dunk the end. He knows like. He started with it, and he knew he was going to end with it. That harpoon going through the chest is maybe one of the reasons he came here to watch the movie. What, looking at the poster on Letterboxd, not the most reliable source to what posters were actually used for promotion, but there's a nice big harpoon on it, and that's why I chose this movie original, originally, plus H. Lewis. He's a great director. And then just to get that slam dunk ending, it's just so so satisfying. And that's that's one of the reasons why I love him as an auteur, too. He keeps it nice and simple. I mean, this is... If you look at the scope of his career, this is honestly one of his longer movies. He usually likes to wrap it up in 60 to 70 minutes. Yeah. 
Uh, I watched like So Dark the Night uh, mm-hmm. a few months back, and yeah, that, that one doesn't make a whole lot of, or no, it makes sense, but it was like, it wasn't that great on a narrative level, mm-hmm. but it's like, oh man, he's really pulling out all the stops in terms of the stylistic approach to these movies, mm-hmm. uh, and this one is no exception, although the narrative is definitely a lot more compelling than the other two Joseph H. Lewis movies I've seen. I remember uh, Malcolm was judging me a few months ago when he was taking movies from my hard drive, yeah. uh, saying that my Joseph H. Lewis folder was looking <laughs> a little slim. <laughs> yeah, you got to get more in there, man. You got to get, I mean, my name is Julia Ross. That that's a very tightly wound narrative. Sixty minutes. I recommend it to anyone. Um, but yeah, I like I like his stylistic tricks. I mean, I think one thing that I've noticed, especially through this movie, is like the money push in moment. Whenever he yeah. pushes in on a two shot, that's when you know the conversation is about to get intense. And it's not that like he overuses it, but he uses it enough to where it cues me into where the scene's going to go. And you know, maybe the first couple times I'm I'm getting this subconsciously, but towards the end of the movie, I'm. I mean, I know when to put, you know, my butt on the edge of the seat because he he just pushed in on two people talking. Yeah, no, those push-ins into, like, close-ups in those dramatic, swelling moments are like, you know, the stuff of Jonathan Demi, maybe. Uh, yeah. uh, it, it was like, it feels so lively and modern, and not just modern, but, like, everlasting, kind of, you know? And, uh, yeah, so the small camera movements that he uses here feel like orchestral swells of you know a score or something like that but this film is a pretty minimal score you know um uh, yeah the blocking i mean i think the blocking in this movie is really unique too and i think the the push-ins and like even the pull-outs have something to do with that because like not only you know the push-ins not even just used sometimes for like a simple close-up on these two characters but it'll like it'll like uh recontextualize the scene through its blocking like I, in some of some of them the blocking's like a little bit not strange, but like uh, unconventional. I, I think of one where um, I don't know. See, I don't remember the details of the scene, but it's two characters and one's in like their bedroom and one's by the doorway. And then when it zooms in, you kind of just get like the 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 profile of the face of the doorway, kind of like in the bottom right corner, mm-hmm. and the person in the bedroom, kind of in the left. And it just brings a whole new context to what they're talking about. I think like throughout this whole movie, it's kind of, I don't know if pot boiler is the right word, but yeah, it is kind of just like kind of typical B Western or even as you said, TV Western like plotting, uh, but just infused with so much style and attention to detail with the characters. Uh, even if you might say the accents are a little, you know, uh, I guess unrealistic or whatever, but you, you're not going to classic Hollywood for, uh, you know, accurate accents. No, uh, I love like a, a hokey Swedish accent. Like I think I mentioned before in fuck the one of the like boat like our uh, John Ford movies. John Wayne is dropping a Swedish accent <laughs> and it's some powerful stuff. Oh, in uh, the long voyage home. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I mean, I think that it's a the Swedish aspect of this movie gives like kind of like you know you do have a conventional movie dealing with conventional things, but it adds a little bit of flair to this movie. You know, him saying "jaw" and like the like the do Swedish job. Yeah, <laughs> and like the <laughs> Swedish racism that he experiences. Yeah. People are like ah, the Swedes are here. My God. I also love the uh, the sheriff who's in the pockets of. This mm. uh, big fat cat, you know, he's like just not even involved at all. It's just <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, the law doesn't exist now. It's just going to be this mercenary. And then at the end, uh, after he picks up 
money off of the corpse <laughs> of this fat cat. He then tosses his badge aside like Dirty Harry. You know, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's phenomenal. No, I mean the opening scene and where you see the sheriff, he's playing with uh, cards with a prisoner who's out of their cell. It's just it's a pretty funny way to introduce this character and yeah. shows you exactly where he doesn't care about law and order. He just wants a he wants a check. Anything else on this one before we wrap up? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm going to fucking take the reins here and just shoot this motherfucker down with four bullets. A lot of it does have like this really stripped down quality to it where I feel like the two key events are like obviously the father's murder at the beginning, like the house burning down and you get those like intense close ups on like them watching it. Um, and then the like set piece at the end uh, where uh, Johnny Crail is harpooned. But like the middle really fi- uh, fills it out with a lot of like beautiful, like stylized moments. And then also like what Malcolm was getting at and you, Eddie, uh, as well, is there's a lot of like specificity um, to the characters and just um, the story in general, like uh, the Swedishness, the Mexican family that just and um, the the land uh, uh, the landlord aspect with the uh, wealthy baron, all of that like really builds out like this compelling pulpy uh, B western. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna give this one four bullets as well. I mean, yeah, it's it's something that you know seems conventional on you know from the outside, maybe narr- narratively it is, but like. Joseph H. Lewis is such a master of like composition, framing all that stuff to where he, you know, he takes a a narrative like this and kind of, you know, elevates it, so to speak. And I feel like this is this is one of the kind of like great joys of like movie watching. It's kind of like finding uh, directors like this, people who kind of worked with low budgets and uh, you know, kind of made the best of them and found a way to like carve their niche in movie history despite, you know, making movies that no one really expected or needed to be good. You know what I mean? Exactly. There there's no need for a movie like this to be good. It's you you slot it in as the B picture, you know, maybe another Western. It's it's eighty minutes long and maybe the maybe people will stick through it all the way, maybe they won't. Who cares? But you throw a real artist in there like Joseph H. Lewis. Get something great like this that brings us back to our favorite segment, The Sixth Sense, where we all give something the same score. (laughs) I've done that one in almost a year. We've been in disagreement lately. Yeah. We've been at odds with each other. I feel like we've been agreeing, but we haven't drawn attention to it. I feel like there's definitely been a time before we said this last where we all agreed. Well, I'm giving this one four harpoons. There we go, yeah. I mean, honestly, for this episode, we should have... We should have, you know, we love bullets. We love guns. But this is a movie about the supremacy of the blade. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you you know what the old saying goes. You know what the old saying <laughs> You know about the old, you know, old saying. And what it, yeah. You don't bring a harpoon to a gunfight. But I think Joseph H. Lewis proves the old saying wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this old, you know this old saying. <laughs> you, that's wrong. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> everyone's favorite old saying, you know, uh, from brainyquote.com. <laughs> get a nice big old landscape of like yeah. a canyon. Albert like, Einstein. Yeah, sunset over it. And it says, you don't bring a harpoon to a gunfight. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of like. A, a and ma- Joseph H. Lewis <laughs> proved that wrong. <laughs> from unknown. That's kind of like an interpretation of like uh, knowledge is better than. Or no, imagination is better than knowledge. 
Joseph H. Lewis imagined, what if you could kill someone with a gun with a harpoon? We should, we should start submitting some of these as like, uh, you know, the male inspirational yeah. Instagram scene uh, for those not in the loop. And if you're listening to the show and you, you're not following, you know, uh, male soul and millionaire thought, yeah. and these type of accounts. Unfollow us, follow them because yeah. they have the right message. Yeah, exactly. You'll know what we're talking about. You know, they're so fascinated with Mr. Bean. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it's time to throw some classic Hollywood auteurs into those memes, you know? Yeah, I like uh, Mr. Bean, the guy guy who everyone likes yeah, no, <laughs> the guy with no haters <laughs> that's what i'm trying to be yeah bean pilled oh god dude mr bean is I, I it's such a weird phenomenon that all of those accounts of these like male uh capitalist inspirational <laughs> block text instagram accounts all just love mr bean no yeah i mean i think it's like you know he acts like a clown in the movies but in real life he's, he's a boss with money he's he's paper. i think it's i mean they're also fixated on the joker and i think mr bean is like the joker is the antichrist mr bean is the christ yeah i mean i want to I'm imagining like, you know, the movie The Conformist and like how the main character is like, I'm going to normalize myself. Like that's going to be me through like male soul. Like I'm just going to make myself like the living manifestation of like uh, inspirational capitalist meme accounts. I'm going to become the Mr. Bean. I'm going to become male soul. <laughs> uh, let's see if we have any emails this week. We haven't gotten any in a while. No, um, yeah, no one's interested. I think people were scared off by our last one. What, what was the last email even? Uh, was it like a Woody Allen joke or something like that? I can't oh, remember. probably. I don't think people want, then they're like, oh, I guess this is where they do that. And it's like, no, yeah. just email us about anything, you know, yeah. uh, extended clip podcast at gmail.com. And we do have one this week from Spotify, uh, introducing <laughs> Spotify stations, all your favorite music and one easy to use app. Wow. That'd be so Whoa, convenient shit. if an app did that. Oh, wow. We just got another one as that came in. That has never happened in the history Live. of the email segment. <laughs> Live on extended clip. This one is also from Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> this one is actually from Spotify for podcasters. Okay, what's going the on? The subject is behind the streams, the August issue. Uh, this seems to be some sort of newsletter that I've never gotten before, but hey there. As summer comes to a close, we're celebrating one year of Spotify for podcasters with a new video series for creators that breaks down our tips and tools from the inside out. It's been a busy first year, and this series is just one of the exciting ways we're continuing the journey. Thanks for being here, Spotify for podcasters. Well, we thank you, Spotify, and we thank you listening at uh, Extended Clip. I don't know. I don't know what this is. It recommends a podcast at the end. It says, listen up. How to Save a Planet. And from the logo, it looks like this is a podcast hosted by someone whose head has been split in half. <laughs> and the earth has emerged from the middle of their head. Sounds like a freak show to me. We need to get that type of promo just on the Spotify newsletter. Also, <laughs> listen to these guys. Yeah. They're pretty good. We know them. <laughs> For those... Uh, <laughs> who are maybe at a desktop, look up the podcast, How to Save a Planet, and you'll see the person I'm talking about on the logo. Anyway, um, yeah, so give us one of those emails. <laughs> if you're Spotify, email us more. <laughs> Anything you want to say to the people as we wrap up here, JT? Um, as we crawl toward the hour mark? <laughs> I guess. Um, well, I just uh, I posted a, a screenplay uh, that my good friend uh, Tim Tui from uh the speed racer 
and office space episode of this very podcast completed. Um, I'm going to pin the tweet. If you want to read something, why not? Why not this? It's funny. I wrote it. It's good. It's like listening to me, but you read it. I already downloaded it. I'm going to get it for a nice Sunday read. I suggest you do the same. Go download that. I bought the collector's edition. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the mega link is free, but if you want to support creators, you know, you do what I do. And mm-hmm. Subscribe to Patreon yeah. on Extended Clip. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Extended Clip. And what are we, what are we, what are we, what are we, what are we talking about on the Patreon We're getting this week? wild, you know, and when I'm with you guys, I get wild thoughts. So I like, I thought, <laughs> I thought maybe we should watch wild things and <laughs> see how we feel about that. Uh, we talked about wild things, our favorite film threesomes, uh, <laughs> The Mr. Skin <laughs> Corner. Circuit. We talked about circus movies briefly. <laughs> we talked about... Look, the only way to find out whether I love or hate circus movies... <laughs> <laughs> Eddie thinks it's really funny when uh, a clown honks his nose I, and then like and then like a flower squirts no. seltzer out at you. No. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie's like Eddie's Eddie's in like the in the crowd. He's looking like he's guy doing soy facing <laughs> while someone's doing some uh, some tight some tight line. Well, if yeah, yeah, a bunch I of guys squeeze out of a car. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I don't even know circus stuff, so I can't even do this. But if you guys listen to the Patreon, you'll realize how much they're gaslighting me right now. <laughs> Uh, we'll see you next week while we, while we, no, I'll see you next week when we start our new series, Brooks Brothers. We know they're not brothers. The films of James L. Brooks and Albert Brooks. Next week, we are going to be talking about James L. Brooks's debut film, Terms of Endearment, alongside Albert Brooks's mother. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. And I'm going to figure out something else to do on the Patreon that isn't like those films probably another hong kong film next week i hope so maybe not don't hold me to it actually hold me to it i'm holding you to it man you yeah we're not. gonna do another hong kong you film. better not fuck up i'm telling the audience to hold me to it i'm pointing at both of my co-hosts with my pinky and index finger in a rock on motion <laughs> so rock on <laughs> listeners have a good week um we love you here at extended clip you know <laughs> So close to an hour. So uh, 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 Why do we don't need an hour? I know. Fuck an hour. No, and we're, with editing, this is going to be like forty-nine minutes. Hell yeah! Throwing some long clips. Bye.